Hi, and welcome to the Exam Room Podcast brought to you by the Physicians Committee. I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. As always, thank you. Thank you so very much for giving the show a download and a listen today. I cannot begin to tell you how much we all appreciate it here at the Physicians Committee. As we get ready to flip the calendar to a new year, it is hard to think that, man, we've only been doing this podcast for 12 months. 2018 was our first year, and I feel like it's been so much longer than that, you know, because we have learned so much during our time together. So much. And the heights that we've reached, you know, more than a million listens in in 10 months. Extraordinary. And I can't begin to also thank you enough for all of the kind words that you've shared with us on Twitter and on Instagram and the emails that you've sent and and the messages on Facebook that you've sent. I have read each and every one of them, and they touch me deeply. All of you with so many questions and your own stories of inspiration. It is just extraordinary what we are building together. Because truly, this is a collaborative podcast. It's myself and the Physicians Committee, Dr. Neil Barnard, our wonderful dietitians, Susan Levin and Lee Crosby, our tremendous doctors, Dr. Hanna Kaliova, Dr. Steve Niebuhr, Dr. Jim Loomis. So many people help put this thing together, and we all work together to help spread a little bit of knowledge and inspiration, hope and health. And we're going to continue to do that into the new year. But before we round out 2018, I wanted to take a look back at some of our most downloaded episodes, our hottest topics, if you will, you know, those conversations that really got us buzzing. And perhaps there was no bigger conversation than the one about weight loss. Seem to come up quite a few times over the course of the year. And why not? Everybody, it seems, is desperate to lose those extra pounds. And it's so important now, maybe more than ever, as the obesity rate continues to surge. It is at epidemic levels. Obesity is something that we should all work together to try to diminish and slim down in 2019 and really take control of our health. But, you know, one of the foods that is playing a particularly large role in the obesity epidemic and our expanding waistlines is cheese. And so I want to take you back to an episode that we did way back last January with Dr. Barnard, called it The Cheese Trap, named after his book of the same name. And I was shocked, shocked to learn not only how much cheese is eaten every year, but why, why we continue to eat it. Here now, my conversation with Dr. Neil Barnard. I know that um, a lot of people are also concerned about vanity and keeping their weight down, and obviously eliminating cheese from your diet would help you in that area as well. Oh, Chuck, a- absolutely. Your average American consumes 65,000 calories worth of cheese every year. 
Wow. See, sixty-five. What? That's like a full month's worth of that, calories. That is, is that is a lot. Yeah. Um, your average American consumes sixty-five thousand calories worth of cheese every year. <laughs> and imagine, what if you could somehow how next year, without thinking about it, consume sixty-five thousand fewer calories? Would you lose weight? Absolutely. And the, there are a couple of reasons why cheese is so fattening. One is. We've talked about this before. Fat has nine calories in a gram. Mm-hmm. Uh, carbohydrate has only four. Well, cheese is 70% fat. So it's got a lot of fat grams. Yeah. I mean, if it were any worse, it would be Vaseline. <laughs> um, and so you're just swallowing this. You may as well just paste it on your thighs. That's where it's going to go. <laughs> yeah, that's a thought. Um, the other thing, though, it's not just the fat um, calories. that when you, when, when you eat all that fat, it gets into your cells and slows your metabolism down. And the third thing, if people aren't completely convinced that cheese this, – and this is a surprise. You don't think about this. Cheese is one of the highest sodium foods there are. Sodium is added in the cheese-making process huh. to keep the fermentation in check. And so cheese, ounce per ounce, has more salt than, than potato chips. Really? Oh, yeah. Yes, it does. I, I wouldn't think that. Okay. Two, two ounces of potato chips. 300 from the U.S. government website, 330 milligrams of sodium. Two ounces of cheddar, 350. Two ounces of Edom, uh, 500. Two ounces of Velveeta, 800 milligrams of sodium. Well, is Velveeta even cheese? I mean, that's that's a question right there. Well, if it were, it wouldn't be any better. Um, <laughs> if it were, it wouldn't be any better. Um, and, and so what does the sodium do? The sodium, you know, raises your blood pressure. People know about that. But it also, sodium in your bloodstream holds water. Mm. And then that water kind of uh, gets into your tissues. And if you're feeling kind of blobby and, you know, your knuckles are a little rounded and stuff, that can be water weight. Mm -hmm. So when a person gets away not just from the fat and so forth, but you get away from all that salt, you see people losing water weight. So you lose a couple of pounds, you know, very, very rapidly from that. So is cheese fattening? I think it's one of the most fattening foods. I think, in fact... So many people wave their fingers at kids saying, it's the sodas you're eating. Well, soda is not health food. Right. Even if it's Dr. Pepper. <laughs> but so, but, but it, it, is not, it is not as fattening as cheese. Uh-huh. And kids, kids go to school. And there's cheese all over everything that they eat. Um, I'm talking about the cheese pizza and the it, it, cheeseburgers. Cheeseburgers. The vegetables have cheese on them, and, they, and then on the way home they get those string cheese things at the Seven mm-hmm. Eleven. And then their busy parents say, "Honey, I've got your cheese pizza ready." You know, and kids are eating it like no tomorrow. Soda consumption in the U.S. has been dropping since 1999. Cheese is going up. Which way is obesity going? Yes. Up. Yeah. I mean, let me let me be clear about this. Everyone wants to blame sodas for everything, and you know, not without reason. That's not health food. But soda consumption has been falling for 20 years, and obesity is up, diabetes is up, all these things are up. And so in addition to throwing out the sodium, we should throw out the cheeseburger that went with it. Right. I think by and large, by itself, most Americans would consider cheese to be a health food. You know, it's, it's a dairy. I mean, it's on the yeah, food pyramid yeah. that we're all taught, you know, for goodness sakes. They do. I, I suppose they're thinking of calcium. Calcium as well, yeah. Calcium, vitamin D, that whole bit. Let's tackle that. Why not? Um, let's talk about calcium. Um, cows don't make calcium. You know, people think, is cal- I need milk for calcium. Right. The c- cow does not make calcium. Calcium is in the earth. And the calcium is pulled by green leafy vegetables. In this case, I'm talking about grass. Mm-hmm. And the grass pulls the calcium out of the earth and the cow eats it. Um, 
And if there is calcium in the milk, it's, the cow just ate it. Um, and there is calcium in all green leafy vegetables, and so you don't need the cow for it. You, mm. can, you can eat the – calcium comes from the earth into green leafy vegetables. If you eat the green leafy vegetables, you will get calcium. If the cow eats green leafy vegetables like grass, he, she gets calcium and it ends up in the milk. But you don't need it from that source because that's not where it started. Mm. Brilliant marketing on the dairy industry then. It is, and it's a funny thing because if you look at milk, the calcium absorption is not very hot. It's not very good. Um, Here's my Brussels sprouts. Here's my broccoli. It's over 50% of calcium in the green vegetable is absorbed. Your body takes it out. For milk, about 30%. Interesting. I have never heard that before. That's a nice little nugget. Yeah. um, So in other words, you can drink milk, and there is calcium in it, but 70% of that calcium goes right through your intestinal tract into the toilet. Isn't this cheerful thought? Oh, Sorry. A little <laughs> wasteful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pardon don't, the pun. Don't, don't zero in on this image too much. Yeah. But, um, but you get the idea. That calcium, yes, it's on the label. Mm-hmm. Are you going to absorb it? Is it ever going to get past your intestinal wall? No. About 30% does. Wow. So that's something to think about, boys and girls. Um, I want to circle back to obesity. Obviously, that's that's an epidemic. I think now that uh, forty percent of of Americans are now considered obese. I think that that was the the latest study. Um, and obviously, obesity is just linked to scores of chronic diseases. And if cheese is directly linked to obesity, one then could surmise that cheese is directly linked to scores of chronic disease. With no question about it. Um, If you're eating this huge load of of fat and salt uh, day after day after day, multiple times a day, um, it will set the stage for these problems. And by by the way, it was not always so. If you look back, the U.S. government started tracking America's eating habits in 1909. And in 1909, cheese was something you ate in Switzerland. Right. Not in Peoria. (laughs) Not in Trenton. We don't, you know, cheese is not our thing. The average American... In 1909, ate 3.8 pounds of cheese. Today, it's 35 pounds of cheese is the average consumption in a year. Um, and that was really because of fast food chains and, and pizza chains starting in the 70s and 80s and 90s when it's just gone through the roof. Think about that. 35 pounds of cheese. I mean, what, that's, what, a couple of cinder blocks worth of queso? Is it? <laughs> oh, it's, it's a lot. I mean, that's... But, but, well, that's average. Um, for, for every vegan who's not consuming any, there is somebody else eating 70. Unbelievable. Yeah. So if cheese is so bad for us, then why in the world do we keep eating it? It's like we look at that block of cheddar. And it, it, think about this like, like the movie Brokeback Mountain, right? It's like we look at the block of cheddar and we say, cheese, I can't quit you. I can't quit you. And so often, even here at the Physicians Committee, we hear, well, I'd go vegan, but I just can't give up the cheese. People can give up meat so much more easily than they can the cheese. We crave it. We crave it. We crave it. So why is it? What causes those cravings? Well, as Dr. Neil Barnard explains here, it turns out there's a very scientific reason why? Here's the thing about cheese that you, you and I have talked about a little bit is that um, it's a tough one to rid from your diet. If you've eaten cheese, then what you call it is dairy crack. It is a highly, highly, highly 
addictive food. Is that just because our bodies are kind of wired to um, seek out those high calorie foods because, you know, we're scavengers, we'd like to store the fat. That's just kind of how we progressed evolution from evolution. You know, it's, it's a funny thing. It smells like old socks. Why do people get hooked on this darn stuff? <laughs> you know, you think, of all the foods that would be addicting, why that one? I know, right? You know, it's the food that is defined by the fact that it stinks. Um, and <laughs> it does. Some worse than others? Yes. Um, in fact, we can talk about why it stinks at some point. By all means. Um, <laughs> but... Yes. Um, th- that was, as I said, kind of the top of the show. That's what lured me into this in the first place is I would see people who on a vegan diet were getting dramatically healthier, mm-hmm. but they felt addicted to cheese. They'd say, oh, you know, I want to go back to this. I think, wait a minute. Don't go back to eating it. That's the food that didn't love you back. Right. That's the food that gave you diabetes. Right. Um, why is it addicting? I think there's three reasons. Number one, um, it's fatty. Number two, it's salty. And fatty, salty foods in, in combination, onion rings, potato chips. French fries. Those foods, they become addicting snack foods. And, you know, I bet you can't eat just one. Um, (laughs) That's, you know, if if it's mashed potatoes, well, maybe you're not going to dig into it. But the fatty, greasy combination grabs you. Cheese is really fatty and really salty. But I think there's a a third reason that's that's bigger, and those are casomorphins. Mm. Uh, These are opiates that are in, they they are in the dairy protein. Casein, C-A-S-E-I-N. Casein is the the protein in milk, and it's concentrated when you make cheese. And when the casein protein breaks apart, it's like like any protein. It's a string of beads, and each bead is an amino acid. Mm -hmm. And those beads go into your bloodstream, and your body uses them to make protein. But some of those beads, the amino acids in the protein, stay together in a string of four, five, six, seven amino acids, and they go to the brain. They attach to the very same receptors that heroin attaches to, and they have an opiate effect, I, a, a narcotic effect on the brain. Uh, yeah, you mentioned opiates. I was just going to ask, I mean, is, is that the same as, you know, like an Oxycontin or, or heroin or, you know, any one of those opiates? Not only is, y- yes, the, the short answer is it's, it's the same, um, and it's simply not as potent. It's like a it's a milder narcotic. Um, I'll give you a number there. There was um, one, probably the most potent of the cheese casomorphins is is um, has four amino acids in it. It's called morphoseptin, and it attaches to the brain receptors with about one tenth the power of pure pharmacy grade morphine. Mm-hmm. So it's not enough to get you arrested, but it's just, it's just enough to make you think, "Oh, that was nice. You know, let me come back to that. I I, don't, I hope I have some in, some in the fridge uh, or or I could be vegan except for cheese." That that's the drug talking, I have to tell you. Well, it's, it's I mean, serious question then. I, you know, half joking, half serious, can you OD on cheese? I mean, take, you know, fat and all of that aside. It's not going to kill you, but yes, but will you have physical effects? Yes, you will. Um I don't know if you ever noticed anybody who kind of lingered over the cheese tray a little too long, and the next day they were really constipated. Well, what does a narcotic painkiller do? Oh it binds God. a person up. And so what have you been doing? You've been taking mild narcotics, putting them right down through your intestinal tract, and it just suddenly the next day you can't go to the bathroom. It's, it's, you've, been, you've been eating a narcotic. Wow. But consider yep. my mind officially blown right now. <laughs> it's like... That makes so much sense. Yeah. That is unbelievable. Don't man. try this at home. 
So we're fighting this addiction to cheese, and yet we are bombarded with advertisements telling us it's okay to pound that provolone. Think about every time you turn on the TV. When was the last time you were able to watch a show or a game and you didn't see some sort of cheesy sales pitch? Cheese, my friend, is big business. And what we have discovered, this is really interesting. We played Sherlock Holmes here. What we've discovered in federal documents that we were able to obtain is that the government is in on this cheese conspiracy. So I sat down with PCRM's Vice President of Legal Affairs, Mark Kennedy, for a very interesting conversation. We combed through those documents and discovered that Pizza Hut, Wendy's, McDonald's, virtually all major fast food chains are working with the government to ensure that you eat as much of that cheese as possible. Let's talk about DMI, Dairy Management Inc. Let's talk about their involvement with the major chains out there. We're talking about Domino's. We're talking about Pizza Hut. We're talking about McDonald's, Wendy's. I mean, you name it, there's an involvement there. So you touched a little bit on it earlier. I mean, this is a true collaboration with the government and these restaurants. So how is this whole thing working? For the dairy industry, it's working very well. Yeah, I believe it. Uh, you know, I mentioned these the initial FOIA requests, Freedom of Information Act requests we did a very long time ago. And at the time, we were discovering relationships with restaurants that were very small amounts by comparison to what came later. You know, maybe 8,000 here, 15,000 there, 40,000, 100,000. Mm-hmm. But now the numbers are in the millions. And you might have heard there was one uh, maybe five, six years ago in which – Domino's got $12 million from the dairy checkoff via DMI, Dairy mm-hmm. Management Inc., to develop and release new products. And I have a list here. I mean, I can read you, if you don't mind, I can read you some of the crazy product names and what they they, they <laughs> what they include going back literally 20 years. Break it on, because I'm sure that I'll recognize at least a few of them, so, so will the people listening. All right. Well, you know, one of the early partnerships was with Pizza Hut, but of course, because of course, you know, cheese has, it's well, it is pretty much all cheese, right? So there was a thing called the Insider Pizza. This came out around 2000, and it had one pound of cheese. And in that same year, DMI had worked with Burger King, gave them forty thousand dollars for the honor to develop new programs and products for Burger King. At Wendy's, the following year. There was a similar uh, promotion, and Taco Bell, the three-cheese blend, Pizza Hut, the ultimate cheese pizza, which Mm. featured six different types of cheese. I remember that one. And 50% more pizza Mm. or cheese than the average pizza. Mm -hmm. Burger King introduced the extreme double cheeseburger and the spice and Cajun cheeseburger. Wendy's introduced the chicken mozzarella supreme. All of these product names, these came right out of the program. Uh, The next year, Taco Bell steak quesadilla with an average of eight times more cheese than any other (laughs) item had on the menu at the time 2003 wendy's to develop the wild mountain chicken sandwich and the wild mountain bacon cheeseburger and with all these things you know they sound relatively routine but the idea was that dairy management inc had said look why don't you stick on two 
or three slices of cheese because just having one slice of cheese is not enough. We're going we're gonna to push more cheese this way. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that if Wendy sells more cheese, the producers are happy and other restaurants might fall in line. So it keeps going. Uh, the Cheesy Bites pizza. Remember that one? I think it was the one with – Oh, you, uh, you like little cheese-filled almost <laughs> breadsticks as a crust or something right. like that? That was a 2006 Pizza Hut uh, partnership with the Dairy Checkoff. Here's another one um, a little earlier, 2005. The Cheesy Bacon Tender Crisp Chicken Sandwich and the Cheesy Bacon Angus Steak Burger, both from Burger King, I each featuring my, three slices. I feel my arteries clogging just talking about mm-hmm. that. Uh, some of the Domino's partnerships kicked in uh, around 2007, and I see the cheesy garlic bread pizza at Domino's, mm-hmm. the, um, a couple specialty pizzas. And, and the idea was, and this is a phrase from one of the partnership presentations, lifelong pizza lovers, parentheses, and therefore cheese consumers. <laughs> I mentioned the, the $12 million marketing support. That actually was 2009. After that, you have more McDonald's uh, steak and egg burrito in 2010, another Pizza Hut promotion in 2010, and on and on and on. And what we saw was that by 2011, there were six full-time DMI employees who just sat in the McDonald's headquarters in Illinois thinking of new products to Mm. sell. And this is... You know, this is all for a, a, what was once considered a generic advertising program when it was originally conceived. Now you have all the producers of all dairy products in the nation actually funneling their money into, among other things, six people who just sit at McDonald's all day. A cheesy think tank. Interesting. Indeed. I think one of my favorite campaigns uh, is just horrific. Uh, you remember this one, Wendy's Summer of Cheese. It's a summer I don't want to remember. I mean, (laughs) seriously. But I I remember, I I wish I had the stats in front of me, but it was something like they they sold, uh, it had to have been more than a ton of additional cheese that summer. Like, this was a ridiculously effective campaign. That's right. And that's kind of the concept. The the checkoff programs think in terms of pounds and dollars. And so... There was this thing, the Wendy Cheddar Lovers Bacon Cheeseburger. And I think you may have talked about the stats before. Certainly Dr. Barnard has. Yeah. But 2.25 million pounds of cheese there it is. went through that, that uh, product, oh, Three hundred, which you know equates to 380 tons of fat um, and 1.2 tons of cholesterol. Mm-hmm. And, and as I said, you know, the idea with these is that there's, there's going to be a benefit to the whole industry. And according to USDA you know, publications promoting this stuff. The return on investment is something like 18 to 1. So everybody who's selling cheese wins. These restaurants just love this program. They're getting paid to have somebody else create these products for them, and their sales just shoot up. That's right. That's unbelievable. Um, But here's the thing I mean this is this is something that continues to this day I know that Dr. Barnard recently had an op-ed in The Hill we'll link off to that on pcrm.org slash podcast um just this past February, the DMI partnered with Pizza Hut to add 25% more cheese to the company's pan pizza, uh, hoping to unload, get this, 150 million pounds of milk every year. And then, 
And then those think tankers up at McDonald's, they came up with, uh, what is this, a way to create 30% larger cheddar cheese slices for uh, McDonald's signature crafted recipe sandwiches and the Egg White Delight McMuffin. And because it's egg whites, you know it's got to be healthy, Mm. Mark. Yeah, that just screams healthy. Unbelievable. So, So this beast shows no signs of slowing down. No. Why would it? You know, it's just a free-for-all. The funny thing is that it's so at odds with everybody's health recommendations, including the USDA's own health recommendations in the dietary guidelines. But there's this total disconnect, a conflict of interest in how these programs are are run. And you're right. It's just going to go on and on and on. A few of the checkoff programs actually have uh, a provision in the statute or sometimes in the regulations that say you – cannot do any brand-specific advertising. Mm-hmm. And that you know goes back to the day when it was generic. But for these checkoff programs like the dairy checkoff that don't have that uh, provision, you just have this fun free-for-all when really the people who are getting the most out of it are already the biggest corporations and sort of the worst health-wise. It seems like a conspiracy, but I assure you it is not. These documents that we were talking about are readily available for you to review yourself. Many of them have been published by the New York Times. They've got them right up on their website. I encourage you to take a look. Moving on now, as we continue to take a look back at 2018, Another one of our biggest shows this year was about gut bacteria. As a matter of fact, for a good chunk of the year, it was by far and away our single most downloaded episode. It is a hot topic. Good gut bacteria is crucial to good health. And like cheese, it plays a big role in food addiction as well. Check out my conversation that I had with Dr. James Loomis. He's the medical director of the Barnard Medical Center. One of the things that really fascinated me as I began to poke around in this is that it's really tied to the foods that we crave. I mean, it it, it almost has a direct connection to our brain. Yeah, so that that is one of the most fascinating and emerging areas of research, and it's this gut-brain axis. And when I first read about this, I thought, this is the craziest thing I ever heard of. What do you mean that when I crave a cupcake, it's my gut bacteria telling me to eat that? But if you, but if you step back for a minute and you think about this through the lens of kind of evolution, um, you know, if you're a bacteria – so any biologic system evolved – to, to develop strategies to be able to pass on its DNA. That's what we're all around for. And, it, and in, you know, it, it's that evolutionary mismatch in our personal lifestyle, which has created many chronic diseases. But just imagine you're a gut bacteria and you like to eat sugar. And you could evolve a strategy to make your host eat sugar. Mm-hmm. So that's going to provide you a survival advantage. And in fact, that's, it's felt that that's exactly what many of these gut bacteria ha- have, have, have evolved to do. And so... Many of the, the – so our food cravings, it's a, it's a fairly complicated biology having to do with neurotransmitters and hormones that interact in our, in our, in our uh, pituitary gland and then with the hypothalamus, which is a part of our brain that controls reward and, and cravings and, and, and such, plays a role in addictions. It, the, the amazing thing is that it's clearly been shown that 
the gut bacteria can make compounds that are very similar, if not identical, to these same neurotransmitters and can drive our brains to, to crave certain foods. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And those those foods that I guess are super addictive, I guess, those are the ones that are highly processed, high in sugar, you know, exactly. the sad diet, standard American it, it, diet. Exactly. And the two hormones that are made are dopamine and serotonin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not only do they play a role in food addictions and mood and food addictions and, 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 and cravings, there's increasing evidence they may play a role in many other uh, mental health issues, That's such true. as depression and anxiety, and even some chronic diseases like autism. Interesting. So the struggle is real. I get, I, well, that kind of makes me think you hear about people going plant-based and then coming off of their antidepressants. So you got to think that there is at least part of that connection. That's exactly right. So, so the, the other fascinating thing, so that, that really lends itself to the question, what is a normal, what, what, what is normal gut bacteria? Right. Right. What, so we don't know the answer to that. But what we do know is, is that, that if you look at people that are healthy, um, that they mainly eat a plant-based diet, first mm-hmm. of all, but they have a different kind of pattern of gut bacteria than people who are unhealthy, that have chronic metabolic diseases, have colon cancer, have chronic inflammatory diseases. And it has to do, there's several things that, that, that have been shown. So the two major kind of species of gut bacteria broadly are bacterioides and firmicutes. And, and in someone who has a healthy gut, the bacterioides species predominate. And in people who have an unhealthy goat, it, it's more of the firmicutes. And there's been switch studies. You, you take someone who, who eats a standard American diet and you switch them over to a plant-based diet, and, and you will see a shift in those, those ratios. Now, what constitutes the absolute kind of ideal, it, is, it probably is highly variable. It depends on your own personal genetics. It depends on your geographic location, what kind of dirt lives in the, in the soil that you live around. Mm. depends on your diet. Um, the other thing that we see is diversity. So in people who have a healthy gut bacteria, you might see hundreds of different, you know, hundreds and hundreds of different bacterial species that, that populate the gut, where people who have an unhealthy gut bacteria, that, that can be limited. And, and, and the reason that is, is if you, if you look at, um, if you look at how our, you know, when we're born, when a newborn baby has a sterile gut, and the first place we are exposed to bacteria is, 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 is when, we, when our mothers, mothers give vaginal birth. Right. The second place we get bacteria is when we breastfeed from the skin of our mothers. The third place we get bacteria is from the dirt that we go out in the backyard or the, you know, the local area and when we hunt and gather food. And, and so our gut bacteria is set at a relatively early age. Um, now, we start to do a lot in the modern society to disrupt our gut bacteria at a very early age. Mm-hmm. We C-section babies. We don't breastfeed anymore. We bottle feed. We pass out antibiotics like they're candy, especially in children. Because when you take an antibiotic, the antibiotic can't tell the difference between the healthy bacteria and, and the bad bacteria. We, we have hand sanitizer everywhere. Um, we're exposed to antibiotic residues in the meat. You know, the poultry, the, the beef that we eat that's given to those uh, animals because they're raised in such ins- unsanitary conditions that they, they're given antibiotics prophylactically so they don't get sick. And it's also been shown to many species like chickens that antibiotics actually um, can serve a role as a growth factor. So they make the chickens, you know, bigger and fatter quicker. So we do a lot of things, 
in the Western world to disrupt our gut flora. That's that's so fascinating. I mean, you, you would never equate hand sanitizer with gut bacteria, um, a cesarean section with gut bacteria, and yet here we are. I guess, you know, we were talking about swapping out diets in that transition. So obviously, if your gut bacteria is unhealthy, what if then what happens when you transition to a plant based diet? Do you start to crave those healthier foods? So it's not that you crave healthier foods. It's the, the craving for these highly processed, more addictive. Because so those, that, that dopamine reward center is the same reward center that gets activated when you get addicted to cocaine, for example. Mm-hmm. And, and there are studies in rats that show that, that rats, if you give them a choice between cocaine and sugar, many of them will prefer sugar because it activates these same dopamine receptors. So when we replace the gut bacteria that aren't producing all of this dopamine, and creating all these cravings is not that we crave more healthy foods, it's that we don't crave more unhealthy foods. And as the conversation progressed, we got into the gut a little bit deeper and we compared the difference between good and bad gut bacteria. When I first started to learn about plant-based nutrition, um, I went to a plant-based healthcare conference and there was talks on cancer and diet and diabetes and multiple sclerosis and autoimmune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis. Mm -hmm. And at one point in every single talk, there was one slide about inflammation. And that's really the the thing that ties from from a pathophysiologic standpoint. Inflammation is really the tie that binds kind of the root cause of many of of these chronic diseases. So, So think of your body as a house, right? And you've got different rooms in the house. You have a brain room and you have a thyroid room and you have a gut room and you have a, you have a, a heart room and you have a, 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 a respiratory room. When we eat a standard American diet, we fill that room up with very angry people because right. the diet itself is so inflammatory. And that has to do with the omega-6, omega-3 ratio. And we can talk about that on another show. <laughs> um, so we create this inflammatory state. So just imagine that a stranger wanders into this house and depending on the nature of the stranger and what room they wander into depends on the clinical on the outcome right Right. so they come in the thyroid room you might get thyroiditis which is an autoimmune disease they might come in the brain room and you get multiple sclerosis they might come in the respiratory room and you get asthma or allergies they might come in the joint room and you get rheumatoid arthritis so where are these strangers coming from well most most of them are coming through the gut Because it turns out that, that as I said in the, in the last segment, you know, the gut bacteria play a very important role in helping maintain the gut's function of letting the good stuff in and keeping the bad stuff out. And, and, when, and it also turns out that the kind of gut bacteria that live in your gut, if they're healthy, they maintain a healthy gut lining. They help maintain that barrier so that the bad stuff doesn't get in. But when we populate our gut with bacteria that aren't supposed to be there, or we we decrease the diversity of the bacteria, so we develop this dysbiosis, it's called, uh, unhealthy gut bacteria, we start to leak these strangers into our bloodstream that that aren't supposed to be there because we swallow a lot of really bad stuff. We swallow viruses and, and bacteria and protein antigens like milk proteins and cheese proteins and and gluten and things like that, which aren't designed, many of those aren't really designed to be absorbed in large quantities into, into our bloodstream. 
And so that's where the strangers come from. Now, for many of these autoimmune diseases, we don't, we're not quite sure what the stranger is. There's some, there's some theory that multiple sclerosis might be a reaction to a viral antigen, that rheumatoid arthritis might be a reaction to certain uh, bacterial antigens. So antigens are the proteins that, that form the lining or the coat of the bacteria virus, uh, which we, form the, we, we, we develop inflammation against. Right. Um, so, so when we... And that's the beauty of a plant-based diet, a whole food plant-based diet, because two things happen. The first thing that happens is, and this happens pretty quickly, is when we, re- when we reduce that omega-6, omega-3 ratio back down to where it should be, one-to-one, standard American diet might be 10, 15-to-1, go to McDonald's a few times a week and give you 50-to-1. Wow. Ki- now, all of a sudden, we've kicked all those angry people out of the house right. and replaced them with people drinking green tea and listening to Mozart, right? <laughs> um, and then depending on how disrupted your gut flora was to start with, it takes about four to six to 12 weeks where, where you, and when you, as you start to develop and replace the, gut, the unhealthy gut bacteria with, with a more healthy profile of gut bacteria, um, your gut will heal. And, and so now you've shut the front door. And, and it's really fascinating. Um, there, there, and, and so, and there's, a, there's, especially when you look across the, 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 the spectrum of autoimmune diseases, for example, uh, I, I think that is just in, incredible um, that, that, you know, we've, I, was ne- I never ever thought of rheumatoid arthritis as a foodborne illness. Right. But in fact, it, there's inc- more and more evidence. And in fact, at least it plays a very important role. It might, it's certainly not the whole, the whole issue, the whole answer, but it's certainly part of it. And there are even more reasons to keep everything in check in your gut. Dr. Loomis and I went on to talk about the correlation between what's in your belly and potentially deadly diseases like heart disease and cancer. Heart disease is interesting. So we know for a fact that that people that that omega-6, omega-3 ratio plays a very, very important role in the development of heart disease. But where the gut bacteria comes in, and again, this is one of the more fascinating, more recent discoveries we found. So there's a compound called TAMO, trimethylamylene oxide, which is a byproduct of gut metabolism. And it, it's, it comes from when, the, when our gut bacteria, certain gut bacteria metabolize choline and carnitine, which are found in eggs and meat. Right. And t, when we make this TMO, it's absorbed into our bloodstream. And it, and it alters the way cholesterol is metabolism. And it's been identified as an independent risk factor for heart disease. We've always known there's a subset of patients who have, who have heart disease who don't have many of the traditional risk factors. You put someone on a plant-based diet, and guess what happens to their TMO levels? It goes down. And what's even more fascinating, so you take, it, you take someone who's an omnivore and you feed them meat, a couple hours later, their TMO levels will spike. You put those people on a vegan diet for six or eight weeks, and you feed them a piece of meat, guess what happens to their TMO? Nothing. Because you've replaced the gut bacteria that, really? that are the, was, were, was responsible for creating the TMAO. Well, that's not to say that if they introduce meat routinely back into their exactly. diet, it won't change back. That, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And that's why, you know, if, you know, that's, that's, you know, if you want heart disease in moderation, then eat meat in moderation. And that's <laughs> why you really, you know, if you're going to – that's why you really have to be very careful because there probably is a threshold, you know, where, where 
where if you eat enough meat or enough sugar, you, you're and, th- and that's why again moderation really doesn't work. If you're if especially if the gut bacteria, if there's a concern, the gut bacteria is playing a role in some chronic inflammatory disease. I counsel my patients to you got to really be all in because you know if you're not, then you run the risk of redeveloping this unhealthy gut profile. Cancer is another big one that I want to ask you about. Uh, it seems like. There are so many links between cancer and, and everything else in the body specific to gut bacteria. What is, what is the link there? So the main one is through colon cancer itself. Um, we know that, that chronic inflammation plays a role and is one of the main risk factors for, for um, uh, colon cancer. We also know that, that there's things we eat which are unhealthy, environmental mm-hmm. toxins and things, which, which play a role as well. And we also eat a low-fiber diet. So those environmental toxins are in contact with the, gut, with the colon wall for a much longer period of time because we don't have any fiber and, you know, you get constipated and, and on and on. Um, but gut bacteria also play a very important role. So there are two autoimmune diseases uh, that create chronic inflammation in the gut, ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. In particular with ulcerative colitis, that is a known risk factor that accelerates the risk for colon cancer because of this chronic, fairly intense inflammation. Again, there is an association between unhealthy gut bacteria and both inflammatory bowel disease and increasingly in, in, in colon cancer. But again, this is, you know, it's kind of like, it's, it's, you have to be a little bit careful about, how, about the inference, though, because, you know, there are many moving parts here. Sure. It's it's not just you know when we improve our diets that improves the the, the gut bacteria. So right. is it the diet itself, or is it you know if you go on a plant based diet, you you may go from fifteen grams of fiber a day, which is what the average American gets, gets to fifty, seventy five, even a hundred grams of fiber a day. Well, guess what? That fiber is a probiotic, a prebiotic. We call it. You hear about probiotics, but these are prebiotics. They feed healthy gut bacteria. So so. You have to be very careful, I think, about assigning cause and effect between is it the gut bacteria that, that, that are playing the role or is it the inflammation or is it the low fiber and, and on and on. And it's the same kind of thing with rheumatoid arthritis because because of the anti-inflammatory nature of the diet itself and you might not be exposing yourself to as many environmental toxins and protein antigens and things like that. You know, And we know that a, a plant-based diet not only improves the gut bacteria, it also is anti-inflammatory, you know, trying to tease out which part of that is, is really affecting, you know, lowering the rate or, or improving the outcomes in rheumatoid arthritis, you know, it's hard to tell. So, I, you know, I, I think you do have to be careful about saying, oh, you know, it, that it's the, it's the gut bacteria that are caused, but certainly there's an association. But another hot topic this past year has been the connection between meat and cancer. If you've listened to the exam room for any length of time, you know that we talk about this quite frequently. And why is that? It's because it is a biggie. And personally, it's one of the primary reasons that I have adopted a plant-based diet. One of my favorite guests on the show is nutritionist Lee Crosby from upstairs at the Barnard Medical Center. She has her own personal story when it comes to meat and cancer, that connection there. She had a breast cancer scare. So I could think of no better person to help us connect the dots between meat and cancer than Lee. 
if meat is bad, then you look at Eastern diets like Japan, where right. they eat less meat and well, more, where they did, yeah, right, more <laughs> rice, more vegetables. They would have a lower risk of, of cancer or lower rate of, of cancer. Oh yeah, there. and they do. I mean, significantly lower. So back in the 1940s, in particular, when some of this research started, um, the Japanese diet again was very high in carbohydrate relative to American standards. It was about 80% carbs, uh, about a little more than 10% protein, which is about what you get in whole plant foods, sidebar, and then only 7% of calories from fat, and very, very little of that was from animal fat. And breast cancer rates were a fraction of what they were in the United States then and now. I mean, just much, much lower. So again, the traditional Japanese diet, which we're, again, we're basing, that's based on rice or sweet potatoes in the case of Okinawa. It was a very carbohydrate-centric diet, very, very little animal protein or meat. Uh, got a handful of blue zones over in Japan yeah. as well, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. So Okinawa is one of the blue zones. And again, their diet was traditionally, it's changing because we're bringing in our Western foods, but traditionally was based on sweet potatoes, actually. Yeah. So let's talk about that shift, because as these fast food restaurants that originated here uh, have moved over into other markets, I would expect then that we're starting to see a higher rate more prevalence of cancer. Yeah, so sadly that is the case because, I mean, it's tempting to think that, wow, maybe, you know, maybe Japanese women just have amazing breast cancer fighting genes and that's why they don't get it. And it turns out that no, when, so I think these studies actually started back in the 50s when women moved from Japan to Hawaii and they adopted the more, um, the standard American diet or the sad diet when they went to Hawaii, their first generation out, breast cancer risk was increased by three times. So not 3%. This time it is three times. And then for the next generation down who'd been exposed to that standard American diet, you know, in utero and growing up, they had five times the risk of their grandmothers of developing breast cancer. So same genes, new environment, you get a huge increase in risk in breast cancer. So it's not the genes, it's the food. We were talking about the blue zones in there. We mentioned them briefly. Dan Butner is a fascinating individual. He is the leading experts on the regions of the world where people live the longest. And I had the opportunity to interview him, did an episode with him called The Secret to Long Life. I highly recommend that you check it out if you're interested in what makes people in these specific regions of the world, these blue zones, why is it that they're outliving the average person by a decade, two decades, sometimes even longer? But back now to our conversation about meat and cancer. One of the other things that Lee and I were able to talk about was the risk that meat poses specific to women's health. And that risk even begins at a young age. If a woman eats meat every day, I mean, just a hardcore carnivore. Right. How much does that increase the risk of developing uh, breast cancer? All right. So first off, we know that eating animal protein generally increases levels of something called insulin-like growth factor one or IGF-1, and that is linked to increased breast cancer risk. So that's sort of on the side. But red meat in terms of breast cancer is actually especially toxic. Um, Perhaps my favorite study on this subject was the Nurses Health Study. They followed 88,000 women about 20 years over a 20-year period. And what they found was that there was a, I want to make sure I get the number right, a 13% higher risk of, of developing breast cancer for every serving of red meat per day that women ate. So each additional serving, 13% increase in risk. And they controlled for lots of things. 
So when you see that dose-response relationship, it's concerning. And you think, well, hey, who's eating more than one serving of red meat a day? Well, one serving of red meat is like the size of a deck of cards. That's really small. It's like four ounces or something. Yeah, I think – yeah, no, three ounces. Three ounces. So it's not even – you know, a quarter pounder, you're already way over the the limit. So – Again, if someone's eating sausage at breakfast and they eat maybe a ham sandwich or a burger for dinner, you've already, you know, three servings plus right there. I mean, 13 times. 13%, not times. Uh. (laughs) It's not that huge of a difference. But again, the fact that when you stair step up the servings of meat, you stair step up the risk, even controlling for lots of other things. So, all right. It's concerning. 13 times, I misspoke, but 13%, and then you eat it three times a day. What? That's 39. Yeah, you're 39% at that point insane yeah so it's pretty insane and again what's even worse meat's never good for you it's really really dangerous for preteens and teens it breaks my heart every time i see you know a a young teenage girl eating a burger i kind of i don't (laughs) but i kind of want to go just take it out of her hands put it in the trash can um because again this is this risk is even worse when girls are preteens and teens because their breast tissue is developing and it's more those the tissue is more sensitive to carcinogens at that point in time. Hmm. So again red meat's never good. Please don't feed your daughter's meat just just move it off the plate. That would make me a very happy woman. Red meat, white meat there you you No, there, so there are there's carcinogens in 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 Cook chicken, cook fish, particularly at high temperatures, we can absolutely get into that. And we did. As the show progressed, I sat down with Dr. Steve Niebuhr. I've got some stats here that we've pulled, and the link between prostate cancer and colorectal cancer, I mean, it is through the roof. Yeah, the link to meat from each one of those. Right, right, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah it's crazy. I mean, you were just doing some math on the on the calculator there and 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 the numbers are are just absurd um i mean we 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 find out that one person dies of pro- of prostate cancer every 20 minutes one man dies of prostate cancer every 20 minutes in the u.s alone and just in the u.s yeah not counting the rest of the world and certainly if it's happening here it's going on in the rest of the world as well um but that that blows my mind if there was anything else that somebody was dying of every 20 minutes we'd say what, what's going on you know um and certainly there are other diseases and people are dying of other things and we're not saying one is more important or less important or whatever than any of the other ones um but since we're talking about this topic uh, uh, to think that one man is dying every 20 minutes, like, let's do something. Like, come on, guys, let's go. What are we, what are we doing here? Um, it's, it's so true. But yet here we are as men, you know, beat our chest, you know, yeah. we, we eat meat. Like, that's what we do. We right. kill it and we grill it. Right, you know? exactly. And, and that's yeah. the American mentality. Right. But you see what that leads to. Yeah, I mean, it's it's fighting back. I mean, you say we kill it and grill it, <laughs> but it, it's not done yet. It's, it's fighting back. Um, and, you know, funny you should mention the grilling because that's, that's one of the worst ways to cook it, you know? Yeah. Um, that, yeah, I mean, so I'm doing research for this segment, and I was like, well, does it really matter how the meat is prepared? And yes, it absolutely does. Yeah, and and to phrase it carefully, there are more or less bad ways to cook it. Um, there's no real safe way to cook it, so you don't ever eliminate the cancer risk from it for a variety of reasons. But one of the worst ways, and actually probably the worst way to cook it, is actually grilling it. Um, when you grill it, you're exposing it to an open flame. 
So what I want you to do is think about, think back to high school class. I think most people have taken chemistry in high school. Um, when you did experiments, you didn't just throw things into the fire, right? You had, you, you uh, most, heated. Most, most did. Maybe you did. I don't know. Maybe you did. But so most things you put in the little beaker and you mix it around and you measure the temperature and you heat it slowly and then you mix it with something else. Now imagine if you took all those chemicals and you literally just threw them in a fire. What would happen? Like what, what would you get out of it? Kaboom. The, yeah. And the, the answer is I don't know what I would get out of it. You know, you're, you're just – it's a totally uncontrolled uh, chemistry experiment yeah. where anything can form. And we see a similar thing actually with smoking. Um, the comparison is really just the process. So I'm comparing grilling meat to smoking just that they're both exposing um, chemicals or uh, we can call it food because tobacco – Technically, can eat it. You'll die quickly if you eat it. But right. um, you're exposing tobacco or exposing meat to fire, um, and that quick reaction with the fire creates a lot of chemicals that you may not necessarily want in your body. Maybe even some chemicals we're not even aware of yet. Uh, last I heard, there were something like over 400 different chemicals created when you smoke. Uh, so obviously not a good thing. Right. Um, and with Grilling meat, you're creating these heterocyclic amines and polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, which roll off the tongue. Right? Of course it does. Um, and those chemicals have definitely been linked to cancer. Uh, like, no question about it. If you consume those things, these chemicals have the ability to change your cells in such a way that the cell growth can become totally uncontrolled and can eventually lead to cancer. But that's not <clears throat> to say then that, uh, you know, broiling a meat or baking a meat is necessarily healthy either. It's maybe just the lesser of two evils. Yeah, I mean, it would be maybe less bad. And the reason for that is there's other things in the meat that can also lead to cancer. There are some moments in life that just stick with you. They are etched into your memory, a memory that is so vivid that it will always seem like it happened just yesterday. Such was the case with a bombshell announcement about meat from the World Health Organization. One of the things that really jumped out uh, and kind of brought this to light in mainstream America was this enormous World Health Organization yeah, yeah. Uh, proclamation that came out a couple of years ago. I mean, that was just groundbreaking. I remember I was uh, still working as a news reporter at the time, and I hadn't gone out on the street yet. I, I hadn't had my assignment. I'm sitting at the desk, and that tweet comes out yeah. from the WHO, and it's like, oh, my, what in the heck was that? Yeah, yeah. I, I still remember where I was when that happened. That that blew away a lot of us. We yeah. said, what, the World Health Organization just said that? Like, yeah. the, you know, one of the major, if not the major governing body for health in the whole world uh, said that processed meat is a carcinogen and leads to cancer. Uh, that was that was a major development. Now, you know, that's not just me, some doctor sitting here telling you that. That's the World Health Organization. And it's it's not just, uh, you know, some cancer. I mean, what is it, 30% of all cancers in Western countries and up to 20% in developing countries linked uh, to dietary factors. I mean, that's, that's just staggering. Yeah, and those are uh, possibly, you know, likely preventable deaths. <clears throat> Excuse me, it's all okay. stuck in there. But imagine, you know, think of think of 10 people you know. You know, anybody can think of 10 people, right? Sure. Um, now, three of those people may die of a death from cancer that is possibly maybe even likely preventable. You mm -hmm. know, wouldn't you want to do something if three people you know were going to die of cancer? No doubt. Yeah, of course, right? I think we all would. So if it's something really as as simple, maybe not easy, but as simple as changing your diet, 
you know, I would certainly say, hey, just eat something differently to try to avoid this death. And we see, I mean, this is this is an, uh, a major study throughout the world. Um, we see that changing diet does make a difference. You know, we've, we've seen studies through the World Health Organization. We've seen studies through the Adventists and all, all kinds of different groups. Yeah, I want to quantify this a little bit more because I'm a numbers guy, and I think that that grabs attention more than anything else. Uh, there was a study that shows meat eaters have approximately three times the risk of developing colon cancer. Yeah. Three times. Yeah, yeah. It's crazy, right? It's it's mind-blowing. Yeah, because people don't think of it as a dangerous activity. Like, you wouldn't think of it the same way you would think of smoking or, I don't know, base jumping, right? Right. Um, but the the fact is, we talked before about the heterocyclic amines and the polycyclic, uh, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. Um, but where are those coming into contact with your body? You know, you're eating it. So your mouth, obviously, it goes down your esophagus. It can increase risk of certain cancers of the esophagus, then your stomach and intestines. Um, and where does it kind of hang out in one spot the longest is in the colon right before you have to go to the toilet and get rid of it right but so it's just kind of hanging out there really and it's in contact with the the cells of the colon so that's where it has the potential to do the the most harm really is because it's just it's just sitting there and there's not a lot of fiber in meat in fact there's zero fiber in meat right so there's not really anything encouraging it to to move along really i mean it will but there's, it's not that not that same kind of feeling you get eating a whole meal of beans and lentils, you know? Correct. Even though we talked about this at length all throughout 2018, there are still many, many among us who say that a meal without meat isn't a meal at all. They say that they gotta have it. They have to have it. They can't live without it. Well, the good news is that with the plant-based diet, you really don't have to go without. I mean, you do, obviously, but there are some really savvy meat alternatives that give you that mouthfeel and that taste that you love so bad. And as you make that transition... Lee and I not only went over a bunch of substitutes, but also found some other foods that can help lower the risk of cancer altogether. Let's talk about some positive things. So what uh, what kind of foods, obviously not red meat, but like what kind of foods should we be eating then to actually lower the risk of developing Excellent. Cancer? This is one of my favorite topics because there are so many great foods out there that actually are proven to have, you know, breast protective properties. So one of my very favorite ones is soy because everyone, I don't know who the, the soy people, they need to step up because somehow soy got this image that it could increase risk of breast cancer. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Hmm. So whole soy, not supplements, but whole soy, things like tofu and soy milk, um, anything along those lines, edamame, if you go to a sushi restaurant, those are associated with lower risk of developing breast cancer and for women who've already had it with a lower risk of recurrence. So I'm a huge fan of soy products. Is there any health benefit to, I know that in a lot of these fake meats, there's soy protein isolates. It's not as good as the whole soy because one of the things that's in soy that's actually helpful are the phytoestrogen. So people think, oh, they just see the estrogen at the end and they think, oh, there's estrogen in it. But the thing is that phytoestrogen is weak and it actually blocks the actual the action of real estrogen their own body makes so you have a lower estrogen signal overall and that's a good thing uh what about uh, something else raw cabbage raw cabbage all right so any of the cabbage family vegetables so that's things like cauliflower and broccoli cabbage 
bok choy, kale, collard greens. So any of those, um, they contain, I'm not even probably going to say this right, but they contain glucosinolates. And I'm sure that some listener can call in and tell me that I pronounced that incorrectly. But they help the body produce more good estrogen, which is a weaker form. And they dial back the production of the bad form of estrogen, which is, again, more more activating in terms of the physiology with breast cancer cells. So to get this benefit, though, you don't you either want to lightly steam or eat them raw mm-hmm. because you can basically make this compound inactive if you cook the vegetable. And also you need to chew because you need to break cells apart and combine them. So if you want to chew, if you want to have a smoothie, put some collard greens in there, put a little kale in there. Awesome way to help protect your breasts. Kimchi. Yeah. That too. Right on. Awesome. I know that you love some fiber, so I see high fiber foods on there. I do. I do love some. Okay. And here's why. Because fiber is very much linked with lower breast cancer risk. And um, again, any time in life, it's good. As a teen, it's even better. Because Okay. There are a couple of reasons for that. So there are two kinds of fiber. Do you know this? Soluble and insoluble. Oh, bingo. This is not your first. Okay. I got it. All right. So... Insoluble fiber helps keep things moving along if you catch my drift. And then soluble fiber acts like a sponge in the GI tract, and it actually soaks up excess estrogen because your body will try and get rid of excess estrogen by putting it in the bile, and that goes into your GI tract. So soluble fiber in the GI tract literally soaks up that estrogen, and the insoluble fiber helps move it on out. Uh So that's the reason I uh, love high-fiber foods. Oatmeal is a favorite because it has a great balance of soluble and insoluble fiber. Flaxseed, I know a lot of people put in their smoothies. Sweet yes. potatoes, uh, I love. They are staple at uh, at the Carroll household. Yep. Non-starchy vegetables. Yeah. So you take your pick on that one. Things like celery and cucumber, tomatoes, any of those cruciferous veggies. Um, the World Cancer Research Fund has found that they are linked to a lower risk of breast cancer, probably because they have protective phytochemicals and fiber and all kinds of good stuff in there. We're going to put your full top 10 up on pcrm.org slash Podcasts. There's some other good ones. Pomegranates are on there. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yep. Uh, so, talk so. about, uh, you know, the best foods for lowering the risk. But some people who may be transitioning over to a plant-based diet, you know this. We've talked about this. People go on a diet. They're all concerned about what they can't eat anymore. Right. And so if you're, you know, a hardcore carnivore. Oh, boy. You know, you're going to be <laughs> like, all been there. you know, when, when am I going to be able to have that steak? When am I going to be able to have oh, that boy. chicken? I can't live without that. Right. But the fact of the matter right. is you don't need it. And there are some really cool alternatives there that are 100 percent vegan. Yeah, absolutely. Again, I <laughs> come from a family where meat intake was this thing you did. And I mean, my grandpa raised beef cattle. And so you ate beef. That's what you did. But in terms of substitutes, there's some really great and I won't even say substitutes. These are just their own entrees. And I think most of the time they actually taste way better than meat ever tasted. Give me your top five. All right. So top five. Number one, beans and lentils. You can already guess I love them on the health side because they're high in fiber. They are very rich in protein and they are low in fat and cholesterol. Well, free from cholesterol, low in fat loaded with vitamins and minerals, but you can use them anywhere. So anywhere you'd use ground beef, you can sub in, you know, lentils are a nice, easy one, um, but you can do things like chili. You can do taco filling. You can put it in your marinara sauce over pasta. You can do a no meat loaf. You can even make like a two, 
I joke. To no salad. <laughs> walka, With chickpeas. Walka. But again, it's, they're just really versatile. Yeah. Uh, actually, uh, made the wife, uh, what is it, the pumpkin lentil chili? I think that was on the 21-day Kickstarter menu. Yeah, that was out of this that world. That sounds really good. Oh, she was on board. Of course, I added kale. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I know, right? <laughs> Sorry. Cruciferous vegetables? Yeah. Uh, tofu also tofu. made your list. Again, because it's really, it has particular benefits in terms of, you know, decreasing your risk of breast cancer. Um, again, note I don't say prevent because there's no no magic bullet, but definitely decreases risk. And again, it's really versatile. So you can it can be in the middle of a sandwich. You can you know brush some barbecue sauce on it, bake it up in the oven. You can scramble it like eggs. Like you can throw it in a stir fry. It works. You can put it in a smoothie. It works everywhere. Uh, Eighteen million kinds of mushrooms out there, but there's one that stands above them all. Okay. In terms of meat substitutes, that's going to be portobello mushrooms because they are just exactly burger size. It's very convenient. And also mushrooms, most people think we have four different kinds of taste buds, sweet, sour, salty, bitter. We actually have five, and the fifth one's kind of recently discovered, and that is umami, which is also just fun to say. But it is a sort of meaty, savory flavor. You're giving me a look, but it's a real thing. And so, yes, animal proteins have it, but mushrooms also have it, as do tomatoes. Huh. So it's sort of a savory flavor. Umami. Right? Ooh. My blown? Huh? Umami. <laughs> uh, I've, I've not seen that in the store yet. It will not be a separate flavoring. It is just part of the mushroom. Ooh. Although soy sauce actually has a little bit of that flavor, too, which is one of the reasons it tastes so darn good. Huh. Also the salt. So, you, you know, yeah. use in moderation. There, there is that. <laughs> uh, Satan, that's a biggie. All right, yeah. Um, they probably could use a slightly better name for it. If anyone wants to rename that, that'd be great. Um, it's actually the protein from wheat. I know, it's just a horrible I think name. about that. Like, I think about Dana Carvey's church lady, you know, from <laughs> oh, Satan. I haven't seen it. I haven't Satan? seen it. <laughs> so, I'm so anyway. sure somebody listening knows what I'm talking about. Right, okay. I am not very hip to the whole <clears throat> anything, really. So, I will say that it is a great. <laughs> sad but true. So it's a great chewy, it has a very almost disturbingly meat-like texture so if you were to go somewhere like, I don't know, Whole Foods where you'd get like a vegan General Tso's chicken, Mm -hmm. they're usually making that out of seitan. So, and again, all that is is wheat gluten. So it's a great you know, meaty substitute. But sidebar, it's also in all wheat products so something like just bread or pasta that people think of as just carbs also have protein. Two slices of bread, just your standard loaf bread, Eight grams of protein. That's more than an egg. So just want to make sure that's in people's heads. Yeah. You can also uh, – I've, I've purchased this for stir fries especially. You can just get a package of um, seitan, you know, really unseasoned. Just, yeah. You know, and make it your it own. Home. Absolutely. Yeah. Other, other people make it themselves at their house. I'm not that skilled. You can do it. I'm not that I've done it once. Yet. But, yeah, it, it's a lot of – I would just buy it, uh-huh. <laughs> be honest. <laughs> Pay for the convenience. Uh, shocker. The last one on your top five here, veggie, veggie. Speaking of convenience, so if you're transitioning or even if you just want the occasional sort of meat texture flavor without all the health problems and other issues with meat, um, veggie crumbles or veggie burgers are so easy. They're typically in the freezer section, although you can also find some in the fridge section in the produce aisle because plants. Um, They give you that meaty flavor. They work really nicely in spaghetti sauce. Veggie burgers are something that's great. In terms of the crumbles, I really like uh, they have the Gardein Ultimate Beefless Ground and the Beyond Meat Crumbles. Both of those are really nice. Helpful and potentially life-saving advice there from Lee. Thank you so very much. 
Lee Crosby. I'm sure we're going to be hearing much more from her in the future. But I wanted to wrap up part one of our look back in 2018 with the myth about carbs, carbohydrates, sinful, shameful. They are the devil on your plate. At least that's the popular view. People are avoiding grains and beans and rice and even fruit in an effort to lose weight. But all of that, what science shows, is hot air. So we did a little bit of show about those myths. Spent some time talking about it with nutritionist Susan Levin. She and I teamed up to kind of play 5-0. Good carb, bad carb. I guess the simple question here has kind of already been answered. Should carbs be avoided? No. But then how? what percentage of your diet should actually be um, comprised of carbohydrates? My research for this podcast tells me it's actually a surprisingly high level, right? Sure. Sometimes I like to work the math backwards. Do how it. much? So we talked about those three macronutrients, right? Carb, protein, fat. So if I take out a 10%, 15% of my calories from fat diet, um, which is about all you need and about what, what research shows tends to lend to a more optimal health profile, mm-hmm. then that's going to leave what what's left for protein, which might be about um, 15, 20% of your calories, and then the rest carbs. So what I'm left with is like a 70, 75% of your calories from carbohydrate. Now, most people who eat um, an omnivorous diet or a non-vegetarian diet consume less than 50% of their calories from carbohydrate. Um, But as we get those animal products out, we see that, for example, when you look at just people who follow a vegan dietary pattern, on average, 55 to 60% or more, 65% or more of their calories from carbohydrate, probably because they're eating a lot more fruits, vegetables, beans, and grains. Um, and if you look at cultures around the country, say traditional um, Asian diets will have even more carbohydrate in them because the staple of the diet are things like rice and vegetables. Um, so it's a, it's a lot of carbohydrate. And they do have healthier health, uh, better health outcomes as well. So arguably, again, the more carbs, the better your health outcomes. And, and that's that's so counter to what many Americans now kind of feel is like, uh, well, if I, I want to be healthy, if I want to be skinny, I can't be eating those carbs. I know. It is it is really frustrating um, because, again, you're, you're talking about avoiding the healthiest foods. So one thing I try to use, and I don't know if it's effective, but I tell people, you know you need fiber, right? Right. Sure. Well, fiber is a carbohydrate. It's just an indigestible carbohydrate. Um, so if you know you need more fiber, then you know you need to be going to those carbohydrate um, foods. Again, fruits, vegetables, beans, grains. It's just like a broken record. But I I try to impart the information that way. Like you need more fiber. You're not getting enough fiber. Most Americans get about half or less, a third of the fiber that they need. So if we're going to bulk that up, we're not going to get that by eating more um, protein and avoiding carbohydrate. We need to be eating those high-carb foods. Um, Additionally, we know from research studies that people who consume more grains, for example, have better health outcomes. So when people – 
Because I, I think a lot of people will say, yeah, okay, I need more fruits and vegetables, but I definitely don't need bread, and I certainly wouldn't eat grains. It's like, no, 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 no. People who eat more grains even do better, have better health um, profiles for cardiovascular disease risk, mortality risk. You do want to be eating those grains. Mm-hmm. And you want to be eating a lot of grains. People who avoid um, gluten, for example, because they think they might be gluten intolerant, but they don't know, also not doing themselves a huge favor. Uh, people who avoid gluten tend to have worse profiles, health profiles than people who do eat things like wheat and rye and barley. So I always want to, for people to think really clearly about why are you avoiding certain carbohydrates that are known to reduce your risk for things like diabetes, heart disease, and even death. Like, that's not a good idea. I love Susan. I I had no idea that she used to work at a gym, and that is where her interest in plant-based nutrition really kicked into overdrive. She shared this little story that I think that we all can relate to. This is funny because when I was in graduate school, um, I worked in a gym as uh, behind a like a, a smoothie bar, or coffee bar. Um, this is this was in Manhattan, and I cannot tell you I, best place to be while you're in school to hear what is being imparted upon the public by trainers. So what a lot of people, affluent people, were hearing in terms of dietary advice, and it was just so wrong. And this was also when South Beach diet and sugar busters and all these diets were really popular. And I would have people come up to me, and we did vegetable juices, and we, we did it all. And they would be like, oh, I don't eat carrots, and I don't eat beets because there's too much sugar in there. Mm. God forbid fruit. <laughs> and was, you know, you just want to pull your hair out because you're like, do you really think that Americans are obese because we eat too many beets and too many apples? Like, I really don't think that's the problem. Right. I mean, that was just, you know, before I was even um, really into my studies. But it just sounded bad. Why, and why do you think that? And then why do you want a scoop of this whey protein that has 60 grams of protein in it? Well, my trainer told me that's what I should be consuming. And then after, you know, I worked there for years, nobody's weight got better that was following this advice. Nobody was ever happy. People were always, you know, still trying. And sometimes they would get bigger. It's like, of course you're getting bigger. You're eating what your trainer who can press 300 pounds of I don't know what you call it, but you, you know, this is not the diet for someone who wants to get toned and at an optimal weight. You, you, anyway, it was so frustrating. But yes, I I would just roll my eyes and like, please have a seat. And let me talk to you about fruit and let me talk to you about vegetables. Um, let me talk to you about a profile of a diet that actually lends to heart disease risk, diabetes risk. It isn't this. It isn't this stuff. Um, it's it's the the fat you're getting in your meat, in your dairy, uh, the eggs, the cholesterol, the saturated fat. Um, it was uh, you just want to beat your head on a nice padded wall, but um, padded wall. You're you're kinder. Isn't that why these are padded? Yes, exactly. When you ask me these questions, <laughs> it doesn't hurt when I beat my head up against it? I mean, at some point, you would have to think that common sense would kick in. You know, even when I was still 420 pounds, if you were to tell me that eating fruit uh, was unhealthy, I would look at you cockeyed. I'd be like, no. Yeah. You have no idea what you're talking about. Right. It's like, my diet currently is not healthy. I know that for a fact. If I were to replace, you know, my $20 a day Taco Bell habit with, you know, two honey crisp apples, I'd be in a much better way. Yeah. 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 Common sense. I Common sense is huge. I mean, I really do. I have 
degrees and I read medical journals, but at the end of the day, I'm like, that just makes sense. Like, why do I have a job? Because all of this stuff really makes sense. And I really feel like if we just did what our common sense and even some of our cues, you know, innate cues tell us, and when we look at other primates or what what are they eating it's like oh we just eat plants we eat as much as of the plants as we want you don't you know biologically we aren't born with a scale to weigh what we're eating we just we eat what comes naturally to us and if it's good food the outcomes will be good and so there may still be a little bit of confusion with good carbs versus bad carbs and how can we take a bad carb and make it a good carb. So Susan and I decided to play a little game called Bad, Better, Best. What we have here is a list of carbs that you're going to want to limit. And then my challenge to you, Susan, is to come up with a way to make it a, quote, smarter carb. And then the super ultra deluxe healthy way to do it mm -hmm. okay so we okay. can take it from not so good to pretty good to oh my goodness gracious you're gonna live forever uh so let's start with everybody loves candy 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 not the best carb in the world how can you make it uh, a little bit smarter what's a good alternative well so candy to me is just straight sugar you just want that sugar fix right we'll try dehydrated fruit mm -hmm. like raisins because you, you've taken out the water and you're just getting kind of that that natural sugar rush mm -hmm. that would be my next choice yeah and we can take it a step further than and if that. i could take it a step further grapes because that's just the raisin but it's has not been dehydrated so you actually get that water weight in the grape and the water weight will make you feel even more full than so you can eat you know 20 grapes but you can eat 100 raisins right so right. the water weight helps so when a food is dehydrated, it's not necessarily stripped of its uh, nu nutritious properties. Mm -mm, not at all. You're just losing the water, and so you tend to eat more. Exactly. Yeah. Maybe because, well, I mean, you can, you can fit, what, like 100 raisins in your palm compared to 10 grapes? Exactly. So, you know, exactly. Exactly. Human nature is going to take over. Uh, soda. We talked about that. That's that's no good. So yeah. uh, give me a better option. Well, as you mentioned, um, fruit juice, like 100% uh, fruit juice would mm -hmm. be a f much better alternative than soda or or those you know punches or mm -hmm. i don't want to call any brand names but yeah. yeah uh and we can take that a step further and with that uh the zero calorie seltzer mixed with just a little bit of juice so if you th throw in 100 percent juice get your plain seltzer water put in a little bit of orange juice and you've got this sparkling orange delightful summer drink it's pretty good. Uh, I've always been a fan of, of just the seltzer with the lime. I, I mean, like, it's, yes, it's super refreshing. Yeah. It, it is. Like, yeah. you don't want your kid to have juice. You don't want them to develop that kind of taste. But what about a drink like that? That's not soda. That's got natural sugars in it from the lime. And yeah. it's water. Is that yeah. is that cool? That's cool. Even flat water. Like some kids don't have, depending on their age, don't have a taste for the carbonation. Mm -hmm. It's too harsh for them. So even flat water with a twist of lime, cucumber. I don't. Have you ever tried cucumber sliced I up do, in your? I'm, I'm, <gasps> I'm, I'm just no. Interesting. No. Okay. No, not my water. Okay. I, I like my cucumbers and I like my water. 
but they don't need to be do married. Not no, no. Do that salad no, water. No, thing. we we, okay. we need to separate vegetables and, and water here. Uh, white bread. We man. I mean, I remember talking to Doctor Barnard about this a couple of weeks ago. You eat white bread, man. Your blood sugar just goes yeah. Boom, yeah. through the roof. So definitely something to avoid there. Yeah, because of the, all the, the it's made with yeast, which makes it puffy and holy, and that's going to digest much quicker. So a real whole wheat bread, not just not just white bread dyed with caramel, by the way, read, mm-hmm. read the ingredients, but a real whole wheat bread would be better. And even better is that 10-pound, 18-grain sprouted thing that you can buy. That's even better. Um, enriched pasta, that's kind of the same as the bread. We kind of go down that. Uh, let's, let's get to a specific type of candy, Cotton candy, you know, mm. you, you go to the carnival coming up here in the summer. I mean, that's that's a staple right there. Yeah. Cotton candy, yeah, that's spun sugar, right? Yeah. And, um, one alternative is something that at least has a food in it. So you could do a candied apple. Mm-hmm. You can even make candied apples at home with things that aren't so bad, like a date paste on the top instead yeah. of caramel. Um, but even better. Guess <laughs> an I mean, apple. What a concept! I know. You just said date paste. Um, you know what I looked up recently? Uh, I had a craving just out of nowhere. For child, I was a, such a huge fan of strawberry milk. I mean, a lot of kids oh, yeah. like yeah, chocolate yeah, yeah. milk. But I found a way to do this super healthy and super easy. So you, you've you've got your almond milk or whatever plant based milk you want to use, really, and then you take some dates. You put them in a little bit of boiling water uh, with uh, some strawberries, and you kind of boil that down, and you get a a nice little Ah, syrup there, right? Let me write this down. And then so you kind of puree that, and then you add the milk to it, and you blend it all up. You've got yourself strawberry milk. Wow. So so it's all heated up. Then you got to, you know chill it down but i'm telling you especially if you let it you know all the flavors marinate there for a day you take that out of the fridge the next day oh wow that's heaven yeah that sounds amazing okay i'm telling you super easy all you got to do like it takes like five minutes to make make that concoction so do it uh speaking of strawberries that's uh at the uh spoiler alert that's at the very end of the best choices here uh so let's let's walk from chocolate chip cookie to strawberry yeah Uh, how how do we do that how do you do that with a lot of willpower so (laughs) chocolate chip cookie you know i actually do make a chocolate chip cookie recipe that is a little better i put it's got more oats than flour and i use some walnuts um a little bit of chocolate chip and maple syrup instead of sugar Mm -hmm. it's pretty good i actually call them this you can edit this out i call them my colon blow cookies because they really look like saturday night live reference yes love it okay someone who's i'm right there with you okay um Phil Hartman, man, he was the best. But yeah, this cookie that just looks like fiber, but it's really good. And yeah. even my three-year-old likes the dough, and there's no raw egg in there, so the dough is safe. And he he loves the cookies, so I feel like I'm I'm doing something right there. Um, but yes, if you are um, an amazing person, then just have fruit. Fruit is very sweet, and it makes an amazing dessert. That's something I'm working on with uh, with my wife. I'll just throw her under the bus here. She knows I love her. Uh, so, uh, you know, she's, man, that that poor woman, she's got a sweet tooth on her. You know, you know my wife. Well, yeah, she is a wonderful woman. Uh, she, she is the absolute best. I wouldn't have married her uh, if she was not, you know, just, just the salt of the earth. But... 
Uh, I mean, that girl loves her uh-huh. some sugar. Thus the black bean brownies. And you know what else you can do? Mm. You can make chocolate chip cookies. Careful now. With uh, uh, white beans. And the color variation, because it just looks weird otherwise. But right. you can do mix white beans, and instead of oils and eggs, you add that into the cookie batter. Huh. Uh, yeah. You can make cookie dough out of white beans. All right. I'm not kidding. All right. We're going to swap recipes. Google it. Strawberry milk for white bean brownies. Uh, Last but not least, a breakfast staple. I know that uh, I was as guilty as anybody of eating this stuff growing up, and those are the cereals that are just chocked full of sugar. I mean, it's like sugar might as well be the first ingredient on that box. So those breakfast cereals. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm guilty of that. Take take me. Get me me to a healthy place. So – Better cold cereals are out there, so you just want to, again, read the ingredient list, make sure it has some fiber in it, not added sugar, and those could be brand cereals, um, high-fiber cereals, uh, grape nuts, things like that, muesli. Um, So your best choice, though, is a whole grain, like a rolled oat, Mm. um, a rice cereal. You can make any grain into a hot cereal in the morning. It's delicious. And there you go. Part one of our look back at 2018, our first year of the podcast. Next week, some of our biggest inspirations, people who have turned their lives around by adopting a plant-based diet. These are the people who give validity to the mountains of research that show a connection between reversing heart disease and diabetes and lowering the risk of cancer, losing weight, and becoming the absolute best healthy person that they can be. Nay, nay, I say, they can become the person they were born to be. And so we're going to end 2018 on the highest of notes and get you ready to thrive as we head into the new year. For now, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. For everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I wish you a very happy and healthy holiday season. Thanks for listening.